Welcome to the Helping Children Thrive podcast, where we talk about ways to improve your child's health and recovery. I'm your host, Momina Selim, and I'm a certified pediatric functional medicine health coach. At Helping Children Thrive, it is our aim to educate and empower parents and practitioners with integrative approaches to children's health conditions. Along with this hope that our children can recover, I welcome you all. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's show. When it comes to a diagnosis of autism, a lot of parents initially feel a lot of overwhelm, right? There's, there's overwhelm in, in understanding what they can do to help their child, what kind of life their child will live, help them with a lot of the signs and symptoms that they are showing. Um, there's also an overwhelm of what kind of resource to, to reach out to and, and, and what doctor to seek out, what kind of therapies to do what um, areas to focus on. Oftentimes parents become the best researchers where they're constantly looking at what all is out there that can help their child. Um, And for that, I thought it was, it'd be great to bring someone who has so many years of experience with helping parents um, just make sense of this world of autism and how they can help their child. Um, so I'm really, really excited to be interviewing Patricia Lemmer today. Patricia is a licensed professional counselor. She holds a master's in, of education in counseling and learning disabilities from Boston College. And she also has a master's in business from Johns Hopkins University. She has practiced as an educational diagnostician for over 40 years. She was a co-founder and served as an executive director of the international nonprofit organization, Developmental Delay Resources. After DTR merged with Epidemic Answers, she became the chairman of the board. She's the author of Outsmarting Autism, Updated and Expanded, Build Healthy Foundations for Communication, Socialization and Behavior at All Ages. Patricia continues to write for her blog after the diagnosis, Then What? about combining a biomedical approach to autism with sensory and movement-based therapies. She's the editor of Envisioning a Bright Future, interventions that work for children and adults with autism spectrum disorders. You can find out more about her work at her website, www.patricialemmer.com. Before we get into the interview, one thing that I would highly recommend all parents who are looking into um, getting resources and getting some help is to get hold of Patricia's book, Outsmarting Autism. It really is a complete, wholesome um, resource for a lot of parents. So it's a great place to start a lot of your, your research and how to get started to help your children. So I would highly um, recommend that. And with that, let's just get into the show. Hey, Patty. I'm so happy. Hi, Mamina. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you here today. Well, this is exciting to me to be talking to Dubai. Yeah, no, this is amazing. I've, I've been looking forward to our interview all week. So oh, good. Me too. your book is such a great resource for everybody. Thank you. Right? It's um. I heard Beth Lambert call it the Bible, right? For autism. Yep. Other people have been calling it the Bible. And one of my friends where it says outsmarting autism on the front, she took duct tape 
and put across the word autism and wrote everything. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true, right? Because it's the the parallels in this book are so great for not just kids with autism, but those with like ADHD or other neurodevelopmental issues, even chronic issues like right. constipation or eczema and other things like that. Right. There's so many parallels. Um, so I just wanted to get started. And so one of the main um, themes that that I think is so important, I think it just almost changed the way that I was trained as well at Epidemic Answers was this whole idea of total load, right? And that these kids are basically, they are the, the, the result of reaching their total load. And so what is that for our audience to kind of understand? Well, thank you for asking. Total load is a term that is used in engineering. And it explains if you have a bridge and when an 18 wheeler goes over that bridge and the bridge collapses, what caused that bridge to collapse? And there are a lot of factors. There were a lot of stressors on that bridge. It could have been starting with the design of the bridge might not have been so good or that the weather rotted out the pilings, or that the truck that went over the bridge was overloaded, or that the driver drove too fast, or that an, a boat rammed into the pilings. But all of those played a role in that bridge collapsing. The, when the 18-wheeler went over the bridge, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. So our bodies are the same are very similar. And so when a child is having a diagnosis of autism, that diagnosis came after whatever the straw was that broke the camel's back. But there were all kinds of stressors on that child prior to that. And it starts prenatally. It starts with an unhealthy Petri dish that that egg and sperm got together in. And it was whether the father had allergies, the mother had autoimmune disease, but whatever it was, it wasn't a healthy union of that sperm and egg. And that couple may have had a history of say infertility or miscarriages prior, which was nature's way of saying, this is a toxic environment. Maybe the mother has heavy metal poisoning. Maybe she was constipated all her life. And so that Petri dish in which this egg and sperm grew was not the best. It wasn't maximal. Then maybe the pregnancy had issues so that they did sonograms, so that the sonogram added a stressor to that baby. Then maybe the mother was put to bed because they said this is a high-risk pregnancy. Maybe she's an older, older pregnant mother. And it goes on and on and on. And then maybe the baby had a C-section or the cord was around the neck or they had to use medication or forceps or vacuum aspiration. And then in the first year of life, maybe the baby had infections and antibiotics. So it keeps going. And if this was the baby's threshold and the babe, this is the, each time you add a stressor, the baby gets nearer and nearer to his threshold. And then something happens and the baby goes over his threshold. And then 
he stops developing or he regresses. And the more risk factors that we add, the more severe that developmental problem becomes. And so often parents report that it was a vaccination after which the baby stopped talking or stopped having eye contact. And we erroneously think that the vaccination caused autism. And it's not a one-on-one -on -one that this causes this, but that vaccination often is the straw that breaks the camel's back in some of our kids who have a total load of problems. And so this total load idea for health is applicable to all kids with all kinds of issues, not just autism. And it's applicable to our own health. So when we buy organically, we are trying to reduce our exposures to pesticides and chemicals. When we turn off our Wi-Fi at night, we're reducing our exposure to electromagnetic fields. And so we have lifestyle changes that we make to reduce our exposures to more stressors or more total load factors. Yeah, and you know, it's just, it's about that accumulation of it, right? It's not just that right. one factor, it's just, right. it keeps adding on. And so it's just like a hit after hit after hit for a child who's right. so small, whose body <laughs> cannot take that. Like, you know, it's just how much can, can a body take um, that size? Um, they will reach that limit and then they will start to show results or show us signs and symptoms, right? Um, right, and that's what they discovered when they were looking at mercury in the vaccinations and mercury is a total as a load factor that the amount of mercury in the old vaccinations used to be enough to kill a 200 pound man and we were putting it in this little teeny body yeah yeah it's crazy right um and so they talk a lot about even in general now when we talk to you know autistic families they'll say it, it's it's a very genetic link right? Uh, autism has a very direct link with that. So what did you have to say? Because I know that you've, you've spoken about that in your book, and it's really interesting. Right. So I say the genetics load the gun, and the environment pulls the trigger. So I don't know if you're a seamstress, I do a lot of sewing. And so the fabric that you use is like your genetics. And if you're using nice fabric that's woven well, if you can get a nice piece of clothing, but if the fabric has some flaws in it, or if it's printed off center, then that could make not such a beautiful garment. So the genetics are kind of the Petri dish in which the baby is born. But genes are only turned on or off by environmental factors. And so genetics alone is not enough to account for the autism. So we know that there are genetic risk factors and there are a couple of classes of genes that we know are common in families who have autism, but it shows only for about 25% of the autism have these families have 
these genes. And they tend to fall into the category of detoxification. So if vaccinations caused autism, every child in the world would have autism because there are so many vaccines now given to our kids, but they don't. So what is the difference genetically that puts some of those kids at risk for having autism? And those are the body's ability to detoxify, to raise up an immune response without getting inflammation, without getting digestive problems, without having um, other issues that then lead to more issues and then eventually the diagnosis of autism. So genes are the, the cloth, they are the Petri dish, they are what loads the gun, but you need something to pull the trigger for that gene to turn on or off if, and have a problem. Yeah, and it's kind of back to that same concept that you said of stress, right? And it doesn't have to be like only like a, a psychological stress, but like a physical stress of our environment. Right. And that is really what is then affecting our genetics and, and then causing certain things to get turned on and off. So in, in my book, when I talk about genetics, I have six categories of stressors. And some of them are physical, like chemicals. Some of them are invisible, like electromagnetic fields. Some of them are related to people. So they're toxic people. <laughs> um, you could have a toxic teacher who puts unreasonable demands on a child or um, other kinds of areas of psychological demands. And then there's some kind of do-do-do-do things that are like past generational stressors that we um, don't even think about because they happened several generations ago that are inherent in the, the cells and the energy of the child with autism. Yeah, I think one of the things I really like to do through this podcast is really give parents tools and tips of, on what to do, right? Um, we all know that, you know, if, if a parent who's listening in who has a child with autism, they're kind of stuck with that diagnosis without really having a lot of understanding of what to do next. And I think right. I want like this space to be a place of information for them to, to know what their options are out there. And so I think to start off, I think it's for parents to really understand what the soft signs are. And I think that's something you refer to as well, um, to really get a grasp of it earlier enough, right? Even before they have, have an autism diagnosis. Absolutely. So if they see a child who's constipated or who isn't sleeping or who has red red cheeks and ears every time he has pancakes, they should start thinking of what are these allergic kinds of reactions? What are these not typical um, behaviors that, um, and what's causing them? It's always the why for me. What are the underlying causes? And 
I tend to avoid the therapies that focus on the symptoms and ameliorating the symptoms and rather look at what could be causing that child not to be able to fall asleep, stay asleep. Why isn't he pooping one or two times a day? Those are what I'm looking for. Yeah. And it's interesting that you talked about, you know, those typical signs. So the ones that you're talking about are those that, you know, we don't necessarily associate with kids with autism, right? It's not the, the not making eye contact or, or the stimming. They're really the things that come before that, right? It is. The, the lack of sleep, the lack of the constipation and those kinds of things. The picky, the picky eating. Yeah. Picky eating such a big one. All the, everything that occurs in, in the face, in the mouth, those are what we're doing in the first year of life. Those are all prerequisites to talking. So if the child isn't chewing, he, isn't, he did, didn't suck, those are all soft signs, red flags that talking may come late, may not be easy for this child. Yeah. Um, and so what can parents do, right? So now they have a diagnosis or they have these signs and symptoms that they're looking at. What would be their first step? Well, read my book. <laughs> yeah. Because often if they go to their pediatrician, the pediatrician will say, well, he's a boy, you know, boys develop later or um, well, he's not too late. And so I'm not too worried. Come back in a couple months. So they need to do some reading. And whether it's my book or Googling or looking at what the developmental markers are that are right. Children should sleep through the night by three to six months. Children should be looking at us and following an object with their eyes by six weeks to a month uh, to two months. And if these aren't happening, you need to figure out why. And the why requires us to be a real detective because there are a lot of things in the environment, in our lifestyle that could cause the same behavior. For instance, if a child is constipated, there's a gazillion reasons he could be constipated, could be what he is eating, what he isn't eating. It could be um, that he is um, withholding, that his muscle tone is not good. And if his muscle tone isn't good in his neck and his trunk, it may not be good in his digestive system either. And so we have to keep records and a journal and see where it is showing up. And again, there, look at what normal development is. When I was doing testing um, for kids with disabilities, I made sure that I was also doing testing of typical kids. I was testing kids for um, high level private schools. And it was very important for me to keep my mindset on what was typical. And I saw three-year-olds who were speaking in complex sentences every day was really important for me. So that when I saw a three-year-old who was saying, me want it, 
I could say to the parents, this is not typical three-year-old language, even though the parent was thrilled that the child was talking. It wasn't good enough language. And so we used to have Dr. Spock mm-hmm. and Ilgen Gazelle um, and Louise Bates Ames, those are old names of books on your one-year-old, your two-year-old, your three-year-old, which are wonderful books and I'm sure are still available where parents could say, what do typical one-year-olds, two-year-olds, three-year-olds do? What do they eat? How often do they sleep? What kind of temper tantrums do they have? How often? And what can they do with their hands? How much language do they have? This is so important for parents to have guidelines. And then to, to say to the pediatrician who says, well, he's not that late, or let's wait and see. No, I don't want to wait and see. Give me a referral to somebody who's going to do something, who's going to figure this out. Yeah. And you know, a lot of times their first referral is for like ABA therapy or some kind of therapy like that, which you know, now, now it's starting to show that there, it, it does more harm than good um, right. because you're not really getting down to the, the root causes of it, right? You're right. And how did you get so smart? How did, you know, ABA is just the cat's pajamas for so many people and it feels good because it's intensive, yeah. but it's, it's not, I call it abusive. I was emotionally traumatic. <laughs> it is. And I think a lot of the adults today who are calling themselves neurodiverse and are angry with their parents for therapizing them so intensively, many of them had ABA therapy that was so disrespectful of who they were that they have now pushed back on that so hard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's unfortunate, though, because I talk to a lot of parents, there's still that's like really the front line. And, and what I'm trying it to is. get to them to explain to them is this whole idea of biomedical um, that's out there, right, that they can look yeah. at underlying root causes, like you said, first, look at what their behaviors are like, what kind of signs and symptoms are they showing, and then start looking under the hood, right? What could it be? What are those stressors that are causing a lot of those behaviors or a lot of those, um, those signs and symptoms to show up. Um, and before, but- and before you go running off for therapies and early intervention and asking your doctor for medication or, or a referral, it's very important to look at lifestyle, to look at what the environment is like at home. What are your demands on a child? What are you feeding him? You know, food, Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine. We are looking at people who, families who are letting two-year-olds decide what they want for lunch. Honey, would you like peanut butter today? You know, when did a two-year-old know what he wanted for lunch? He's not going to tell you that he wants um, kale and broccoli um, with his piece of um, salmon because he doesn't know those words. He's gonna ask you for the same thing over and over and over again. And, and, and many of the parents to avoid fights, just give in, but they're losing the war. They're winning that battle today, but they're losing the long-term war. 
Yeah, and and you know it it's so important that you mentioned that because one of the main things that we see with a lot of children and with autism, not all, but a lot of children, and not just autism, even ADHD, other things like that are gut issues, right? That they have guts that are in such serious dysfunction that are probably causing, is one of those main stressors that is contributing to the way that they're behaving and the way that they feel. And typical doctors are not aware of the, some of the wonderful laboratory testing that they can order that gives them a look into that gut. And they don't have to do endoscopies and colonoscopies and traumatize a little child. They can look at the stool and at the urine using um, a mycotoxin test if there's been mold exposure or looking at the oats and the stool and seeing who's living in there. And that is just so, so important, Mamina, that the doctors learn what you learned in your functional medicine course, that these are tests that give us so much information. Yeah, and, and it really is like the key to piecing together the answers to how to help your child. And there've been numerous cases. And I think if people want to go and check on the Epidemic Answers website, they have numerous um, examples of kids that have had recovery. And it's not a linear road to, to recovery. You know, they've right. had to address it with various different right. elements. Um, right. And like you said, it's the gut, but it might also be the immune function. It could also just be mold exposure. It could just be, you know, your, your gut microbiome is in such disarray um, right. that, that is causing your kid to have severe mood and, and sensory issues, for example. Right. And those, you know, we're only 10% human. We share our, our microbiome with 10 times the number of cells that we have in our human body. And so there's a book by that title. Have you read that 10% Human? It's one of my favorite books. Yeah. It, it reads like a mystery novel where it talks about who, who are those guys that are living in our guts and, and what, what purpose do they serve? And this is a huge symbiotic relationship that we learned when we started getting rid of the bad bugs, we learned that you can't get rid of all of them. That's yeah. even some good bad bugs, some, ba uh, some of the bad bugs are good, <laughs> but not but, too many. <laughs> exactly, as long as like, they're in the right range, right? We still need Right, them. it's about balance, all about balance. Yeah, no, totally. And so in your book, you talk about a five-step plan, right? And so the first thing you talk about is, like you said, looking at the lifestyle at home, looking at the environment at home, but also you talk about nutrition. And so what kind of diet should families be eating, but also to look at what kind of supplementation they should be looking at. So Sid Baker came up with the phrase, get rid of the bad stuff and put in the good stuff. You have too much bad stuff and bad stuff is artificial food, chemicals, processed food, um, food that has artificial colors, flavors, preservatives in it, get rid of that and put in the good stuff. And what is good stuff? It's naturally occurring fruits, vegetables, preferably organic without pesticides 
in season, local. Um, and that in it of itself is a huge order for parents to do, to clean out their pantries of all the garbage that's in there. You know, goldfish crackers aren't food and shame on you for buying them. And I sound like I'm being hard on the parents, but this is a big job and you can't depend on your therapists and your school system and your insurance company to do it. This requires you to change your lifestyle and to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So what kind of diet should a kid on with autism be on? It should be clean. It should be squeaky clean. And for some kids, that just means in-season whole foods. But for some kids, they are reactive even to some good foods like eggs and flour and sugar and dairy products, which, you know, we grew up thinking dairy products were the best thing ever. We had to have our couple of glasses of milk a day. But that's not good for a lot of kids on the autism spectrum. So again, there are tests that you can do, or you can do an elimination diet, one thing at a time, take, or take all the garbage away and put one thing back at a time and stand back and see what happens. Does the kid explode or is he okay? Some kids can do with rotations of food like every couple of days, three to four days, they could tolerate an egg. Some kids can't. And some, um, you have to divide an egg up. Sometimes it's the yolk, sometimes it's the white. So we have to be cognizant of what the top 10 offenders are and, and think, is he living on wheat and dairy products? Does he want macaroni and cheese and pizza and grilled cheese sandwiches and bagels and cream cheese. Is that what he's living on? Well, if that is his whole diet, then it's a good chance that he is reactive to the, the wheat and the dairy. And I go into that deeply in the book. And sometimes that's sufficient. Sometimes it's not. And we have to go deeper and we have to take out foods that are moldy. And sometimes we have to take out um, any kinds of all the grains because and all the carbohydrates. So there's a specific carbohydrate diet. And it's, it, it you, requires you to become a detective. It's very, very complicated. And that's why I called my radio podcast the Autism Detectives because I love being the, the detective. It's just like doing a puzzle for me. Every case is different. Every child's unique. You know, they say when you've seen a kid with autism, you've seen one kid with autism. It's not, you can't generalize. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love that you say that because it's so important to have a very individual um, focus, right? For every child. But again, you know, you, you lay such a great foundation for parents to get started on this journey, right? A lot of parents you talk to like, oh, we can't afford various therapies or to see, you know, a, a whole different subsector of, of doctors that insurance may or may not cover. Right. But just by doing like the 
the bare basics of cleaning out your household, the food that you're eating, the personal care products. How many, how many times have you had parents come back and just say to you like, oh my God, like I see so much improvement. Right, right. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I love that, that those kinds of things, they give so much hope to those parents because when they start seeing those changes and those improvements, it really almost gives them that, that extra push to, to go in and to, to dry other things to help them. There's a Facebook group called Power Moms that has embraced the total load approach. And the woman who runs Power Moms took pa the total load and she just helps these moms. Um, and they run their ATAC, which is their autism treatment checklist, um, and see. And many of them have watched those scores just go down, down, down just by doing lifestyle changes with diet, with getting outside every day, taking off your shoes, walking in the grass. She also uses a rebounder. She has them jumping up and down um, to enhance their limb functioning. And it's just, it's a free Facebook group for moms that's very supportive after somebody like you has gotten them on the right track. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that you talk about, you know, her having the the, the rebounder or just to get like more physical strength. One of the other things that these kiddos also do have a, are foundational issues, right? So just things, um, maybe it's their vestibular function that is not um, right, or they have a lot of like primitive reflexes that right. are retained. Um, and it's something that I really want to get that information out for parents to at least hear and know that those are things that they should consider. This, these are some of the most missed areas is the role of primitive reflexes. And I'm glad you brought that up <clears throat> because our body is like a computer that's programmed with over a hundred different reflexes that allow the baby to develop in utero, get through the birth canal and go from helpless to walking. And it's, it's pretty miraculous when you think about it, that if we did nothing, if we just fed the baby <laughs> and stood back and watched, that baby would go from helpless to turning over, to sitting up, to crawling, to walking. <clears throat> It's pretty remarkable, it's miraculous. Yeah. And we do so many things to impede that motor development. And we do them out of safety concerns. <clears throat> and the safety issues today have become just un incomprehensible. So you can't let your baby crawl around because he might stick his finger in the electrical outlet and become electrocuted. So we have all kinds of apparatus, these buckets and the, the um, holders of all kinds and car seats and backpacks and our babies aren't getting enough movement. And one of the reasons they're not sleeping is they didn't expend a lot of energy all day. <laughs> so they never got tired. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, imagine us, right? If we didn't do anything, 
they won't be tired enough to to have like a decent amount of sleep. But right. one of the things that you talk about is just this idea that you know they they will miss a lot of these markers, right? If they're not going to expend that energy or if they're not going to have the opportunity. So some kids might not roll over, some kids might not crawl correctly or that or you know, crawl they, at all. Or crawl at you know, all. And, we'll and parents it. think, "Oh, he walked at 9 months, he's a genius." Yes. And crawling is such an important function for bilateral movement and eye hand coordination and it's we want to push those babies back down on the ground we don't want them up and walking at nine months old we want them experiencing that groundedness and that bilateral movement and and it's so it's so important, right? Because it literally allows their brain to grow and to function. And so not just in that point both, in time. And both sides of the brain exactly. grow so we and to communicate. Exactly, right? Like the left and the right side of the brain. They need to, to grow at the same time and, and, this, and, and at the same level, right? You can't have one side that's more dominant than the other. That's where a lot of the, the troubles of uh, retained reflexes tend to come out as well. Um, And so just, you know, I I want to talk about as many things as we can. Um, Another thing that does come up is our sensory issues, right? So a lot of our kiddos with autism have a lot of sensory issues. Um, You know, they're either easily overwhelmed, you have kids who are sensory seekers, and then others who are not. Um, So what what can parents do with that? Well, Temple Grandin, was the one who really made us understand sensory issues in autism. And you described them well. Some some systems are hypo-responsive, some are hyper-responsive. And um, these hyper and hyposensitive kids have a hard time getting through life. And there's so many good resources out there. My friend, Carol Kranowitz, wrote a book called The Out-of-Sync Child, long time ago, it's, she's just revising it. So it's going to come out again with a lot of new information in it. And <clears throat> she and my other friend and her colleague, Joy Newman, have just um, put together a daily calendar of sensory activities that parents can do just to assure that their kids are getting the, enough and the right kind of sensory information. So this little calendar is just terrific. And it's um, it's called The Addison Child Every Day, I think. And um, you know, one day you might jump off the curb five times, and the next day you wanna walk down the street on the line, on the, on the cement. And then the next day you might wanna go smell five different kinds of flowers. And, it, it utilizes every, every sense and it's just daily activities. You know, I, I can't even contain my excitement for that because I was just talking to a mom yesterday and I was telling her about vestibular function and how, because she's talking about her kid just constantly running all the time and she described him as a runner. Um, and to her, I was just trying to explain the fact that, you know, maybe he, it's, it's his way of, of preventing you know, his, his vestibular function might not just not be developed enough, right? So he's always feeling dizzy if he's stationary. And so like these kinds of, 
of tools are so helpful for parents because she didn't know what kind of tools to do at home um, and how All right, to- so a couple things you use the term vestibular and for our listeners who don't know what that means that's the balance system that is physically located in the inner ear and it is what allows us to feel grounded if you have a strong vestibular system, you you don't feel ungrounded and anxious. And the vestibular system develops in utero. And if kids have had ear infections, or the mother was put to bed and didn't do movement while the baby was still in the womb, that could affect the vestibular system. And movement is food for the nervous system in the same way that carrots and apples are food for your nutritional and digestive system. And so we want kids to move, that it is important for them to get movement experiences. The more movement experiences they get, the more grounded they will feel. And so the best way to stimulate the vestibular system is by getting the child away from gravity. Gravity is keeping us on the earth. And so we look for ways not to have gravity work on us. And the best way to do that is on a swing. So tell that mom that she needs to go to the park every day and put that child on a swing. And what happens is that stimulates the vestibular system. And the vestibular system is physiologically connected to the language center of the brain, to the the eye muscles, the eye movement, and to the gut. So it's going to help with constipation. It's going to help with language development. It's going to help with eye contact. And most important, it's going to help with the limbic system, which is your emotional system, which gets that child excited and he shows affect. And so you get a lot of bang for your buck when you do a swing. Yeah, it's amazing, right? Just one little thing, but it's, but it's, it's one of those things that if parents know the importance of that, they can give it, um, put it as part of their, their daily routine and to get that kid to just you know, get stronger and stronger from day. Exactly. Yep. Yep. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been so helpful. I feel like our parents have gotten so, um, so much out of this conversation for them to just kind of learn about these things, but also now for them to connect a lot of these dots, right? It might not be available as, as, um, as easily, but at least they've got your book, right? They can go there. Right. The one sense that I mentioned briefly that we didn't talk about a lot was the visual system because of eye contact and poor attention. And I have a whole chapter on vision and it's an area that I have become particularly interested in. And so I want your parents to be sure and focus on vision because that that is the visual symptoms of autism, the lack of eye contact and poor attention may show that the child has a dysfunctional visual system and that needs professional intervention 
by a special kind of eye doctor called a behavioral or a developmental optometrist. And then occupational therapists and some um, movement people can incorporate vision into some of those motor activities. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And, you know, it's just now for like parents to look out for a lot of these, um, these therapies and try to include that as part of their healing modalities, right? Right, right. And, and to not feel overwhelmed, right? Like, I love your story right in the beginning when you said, if they just take care of their environment, that itself could do so much for these children. It can, and it can also be overwhelming because you look and you say, oh my God, I got hundreds of dollars worth of goldfish crackers and fruit loops and cheese doodles. What do I do with them? You throw them out yeah. and you know, they're, they're poison and you wouldn't give your kid heroin. You wouldn't give him cocaine. And those are analogous to those. They're poison for your child. And so it's important to replace those. And we're so lucky now, since I've been doing this for so many years, at first, there were very few doodle-like crunchy snacks that were okay. Now there's tons of them. Yeah. I mean, you can go up and down the aisles at a store like Whole Foods, and you can find Brussels sprouts crunchy Brussels sprouts and okra. Trader Joe's has okra and green beans that are great, that are crunchy, that are a great snack for a child. So we yeah. have so many options now. Yeah, no, I feel like it's become a lot more easier. We've got so many um, resources out there for us, right? And then yep. um, it, it makes the job easier to kind of give kids um, something as, as an option as opposed to like, you know, you can't have your your crackers anymore, Harrison broccoli. And they're just like looking at you like, what is that all about? <laughs> right. Well, they're lucky to have you as a resource too. And I assume during these COVID times that you're able to work with families on Zoom and, yeah. and, and um, online. So it doesn't matter where you are today, right? You just no, find somebody that has the expertise that you have. Yeah, no, it's been great. And I think it's it's so rewarding to get to work with these families and to see their their kids get better, right? And I think right. that's really why I do what I do and why you wrote your book, right? To give them that opportunity to heal and to get better. Right, right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I think this oh, I mean, it's so nice to know you and I wish you lots of luck. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for listening to this podcast and spending your precious time with us at Helping Children Thrive. If you find this podcast helpful, please share it with your family, friends, and others who may benefit. If you haven't already, hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Please take a few moments to rate and review this podcast on the review section of Apple Podcasts. This will help other parents, caregivers, and professionals find the show more easily. Visit momenasaleemcoaching.com to post comments on today's show or ask any questions about upcoming episodes. And sign up to receive a weekly update. Helping Children Thrive is not a substitute for working with a qualified healthcare professional. The information shared here is not intended to diagnose and treat your child. Before implementing anything discussed here on the podcast, 
make sure to consult your healthcare practitioner. See you all next week.